The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and tonight I have the privilege of sharing the air with the company of Father Anthony Ciccata, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, and the author of the book, Work of Human Hands, which is the continued study of our show this evening. Father, thank you so very much for joining us again, and welcome to the program. Nice to be here once again. So, Father, on the last episode of Work of Human Hands, we covered chapters 1 and 2, um, and we, we laid out some names and places and things of that nature. So for our listeners this evening, we're not going to go back over the same material. So when we say certain names and certain terminology, we expect that you've heard uh, the first episode of Work of Human Hands. If you haven't, you can go to RestorationRadioNetwork.com, and you can search it. It was last month, same Thursday of last month. So tonight we are going to focus singularly on Chapter 3, and there's a lot to cover in laying out just exactly how we got from the beauty and majesty of the traditional Latin Mass to the abominable Novus Ordo. So tonight, Father, is going to take us by the hand and guide us from point A to point B. So, Father, in Chapter 3, you lay out the 11-step program the modernists used to take us to the liturgical disaster of the Novus Ordo. So let's, let's start with Step 1. Uh, you say that Bunini's first step to the Novus Ordo was the 1951 experimental Easter Vigil. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, this was a proposal that um, was aired in the uh, liberal wing of the pre-Vatican II uh, liturgical movement. They had uh, the idea of uh, altering, fundamentally altering, the Easter Vigil, which is the, the service celebrated on Holy Saturday, as an anticipation of uh, uh, Palm Sunday. So uh, the liturgical movement, liberals in the liturgical movement, set this as, as one of their first goals, uh, one of the first steps in the overall uh, overhaul of the Roman liturgy. So uh, what this uh, involved was a simplification, simplification of the rites of Holy Saturday, uh, and to, to popularize them and to introduce some elements uh, as trial balloons for a further reform of the sacred liturgy. Of course, they used the, um, uh, the term renewed or restored uh, Easter Vigil. And remember that this is, has been consistently part of the uh, modernizers program, that they wanted to present uh, a, a change as a restoration of something in the ancient church. 
Well, Father, uh, one of the things you mentioned in chapter, or excuse me, in uh, part one here is that, that the bishops have been persistent in petitioning the Holy See for permission to celebrate the vigil at midnight. And mm-hmm. that um, why do you think it is that they saw tinkering with the Easter vigil or, or tinkering with Holy Week here, which we'll get to shortly, uh, why was this to them the logical first step towards a liturgical revolution? Well, it uh, it was uh, it was something which was, I guess, symbolic for them. Uh, the um, uh, Easter Vigil services in the uh, traditional rite in in the pre uh, uh, the pre fifty five missal had uh, a number of uh, very mystical uh, ceremonies, and it was actually very long. Uh, Part of the idea was to shorten and popularize and modernize the Easter Vigil. So uh, the, uh, this was what they uh, what they sought to achieve to uh, make things maybe a little bit more uh, literal, uh, to change the forms of participation, uh, and uh, to shorten everything and to cut it down. And uh, this is what they did. Mm. It's interesting, when I first came to tradition, of course, my my experience was with the 62 Missile, which, of course, had all the the modifications to Holy Week in it. And, um, um, you know, I was used to there being an Easter Vigil Mass at midnight, thinking this was the norm. So it it was a shock to me to, to, uh, you know, obviously when when, um, seeing the Mass, or excuse me, seeing the the pre-55 Holy Week, that, uh, you know, so many changes that, that there were, and you realize how much was shortened. And reading in part one here, I didn't realize that, that, uh, that historically that there was no mass offered on that day. Can you explain a little bit about why that is? Or well, why initially, that the, the, well, initially the, the Holy Saturday itself was, a, was seen as, as a day of, of, of quiet and of, of uh, meditation with an element of expectation there. And there was no liturgical service uh, historically in the church during the day. Uh, however, what the Christians did in the early church uh, before Sundays and before Easter was they kept a long vigil in the church from uh, sundown to the next morning. And it was in, in, in the morning as the sun was rising that uh, they celebrated the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So it, mm. it was a, a long, very involved ceremony. Mm. The, yes? I was going to say, uh, you, you finish your point, but I'm, I'm going to get to something here real quick on that. But just, just go ahead and finish what you were going to say. I'm sorry. So, uh, well, the, one of the inst- interesting points to be made is that uh, we see the, uh, this, this change in the time of the Easter Vigil as uh, being promoted as, as a return to Christian antiquity. But actually, it wasn't. Uh, they they uh, shortened things. They shortened the ceremony from, for instance, from having uh, 12 readings to four. Uh, they um, shortened the litanies, uh, cut down different ceremonies, made the whole ceremony shorter. But actually, if you wanted to restore something from Christian antiquity, you would have done an all-nighter. You would have put in 36 readings and uh, observed the practice that uh, was... Uh, observed in Rome to lengthen the ceremony. Instead of uh, singing the petitions in the litany uh, just twice, you would set, uh, sing each petition seven times. So everything actually would have been longer, and you would not have had Mass during the night or at midnight. You would have had it at the dawn as the sun was coming up. 
So uh, obviously what was produced in this experimental Easter Vigil was the opposite of a restoration. Yeah, I find it interesting that this, this, this language of you know, renew this and renew that, I mean, that, that sort of became the preferred language through this whole, this whole nasty period of the 1960s. And I'm wondering, you know, was this, I mean, obviously this, this language was, was chosen for a particular reason. And do you think part of the reason it was chosen was to kind of maybe fool the laity into thinking that, you know, who obviously weren't nearly as educated as they were, you know, on, on these things? Was it a way to kind of bring them along for the program? Do you think there was a, there was a bit of a sinister motive behind it? Well, I mean, it's, it's a propaganda-type term that renewal mm-hmm. uh, at this point was um, uh, floated as, um, uh, you know, something very good, and this, this continued... Uh, throughout the different liturgical changes leading up to the uh, to before Vatican II and then after Vatican II as, as well. After Vatican II, well, all we heard about was the renewed liturgy and the restored liturgy. So right. uh, this was this is one of the, the themes for change that uh, Don Garanger said in the 19th century. The great liturgist said that um, uh, all of the uh, uh, people who uh, truly wish to alter uh, the Catholic liturgy, speak about a return to antiquity, but um, they only speak about it and they end up creating something entirely new, which we know is, was the end result of, of this whole process. Okay, so speaking about, you know, here, here in part one, the renewed ordo uh, of of Bonini. What, what exactly was the renewed ordo, and, and what, were, what were some of the, the the hallmark changes of the renewed ordo for the Easter Vigil. Well, um, uh, the word ordo is is a, a generic liturgical term for uh, you know the order of some sort of a service that um, uh, some sort of service that you have. So that's the the uh, uh, generic word. You have something that's the the ordo misse, for instance. Uh, there were uh, many changes that were introduced experimentally here uh, for the uh, uh, for the Easter Vigil. Uh, you had the shortening of the number of readings. That was um, uh, one thing reduced from from twelve to four. You had the um, uh, a uh, shortened form for the conferral of the sacrament of baptism. Uh, the uh, rubrics implied that one could actually use the vernacular for the readings, that the priests and the people were supposed to sit down and listen to the uh, readings as they were uh, proclaimed, and that would make no sense if uh, they were proclaimed in Latin. So in many places you had the introduction of the vernacular. Uh, part of the uh, the prayers at the foot of the altar, the beginning of the Mass, uh, were lopped off. So you, you see uh, parts of the uh, Mass being, uh, being uh, uh, subtracted. Um, you reduce the number of, of prayers for the blessing of the uh, Easter fire. Um, the then you have new ceremonies introduced you have the renewal of baptismal vows uh this was something which was not done um uh in the church uh prior to this but everyone is supposed to renew their baptismal vows and it's it's something that is an uh innovation 
that's inserted into the sacred liturgy, something that was uh, done in the uh, vernacular. So you have these and, and um, uh, many other changes, many other ritual changes uh, that uh, were introduced. The renewal of baptismal vows, I have to say, even uh, at the time when I considered myself to be a, a, somebody who was you know, vehemently opposed to the Novus Ordo and, and everything, it, that really felt out of place. It just you, my, my, my antenna always kind of twitched when it came to that because it, it kind of smacked of the, what they call the, the intercessory rite of the Novus Ordo where you, know, you have someone get up in the pulpit and you say, oh, uh, you know, let us pray to the Lord for peace, social justice, and equal distribution of wealth. And the whole, the whole congregation says, Lord, hear our prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, it just felt bizarre. It, it really felt out of place in that ceremony. It, it, it was just, it was, it was sort of like you scratch your head and say, "Why are we doing this?" Well, see, uh, something like that would fall very much into the uh, category of what you'd call uh, the modernist love for didactic liturgy. In other words, they they see certain elements of the liturgy as a classroom rather than an act of worship. And by getting everyone to uh, embark out these baptismal promises in the vernacular in the middle of the service, um, there it's it's sort of the students are getting to participate. But I mean, it's right. bizarre. You know, you you uh, well, you know, Kratos and Dave, do you believe in God? Well, uh, what a question to ask. Um, yeah, we're here, aren't in we? In fact, at, at at the seminary of the Cone. Uh, the, the Pius X Society Seminary, where we we've followed this this uh, uh, right, the reaction of of one of the seminarians one time after sitting through this, he said, well, "What a stupid question! I'm a deacon. I'm going to be ordained to the priesthood, and they're asking me in the middle of the service if I believe in God. Well, what do you expect? <laughs> How do you expect me to answer?" So, uh, but that's the it's the corny. Uh, didacticism, we're going to turn the liturgy into a classroom element that you find in something like that. And uh, as, you, as the, these, we get more and more towards the new Mass, you see more of this didactic element introduced. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so to wrap up part one here, so we could, we could pretty much say that the renewed ordo, this was, this was a direct precursor of all the changes. This was, this was kind of the camel's nose under the tent, so to speak. Uh, yes, and and the uh, liberals in the liturgical movement looked uh, uh, looked upon it as as uh, such, and in fact, uh, I'm not sure whether it was with regard to this or whether it was regard to the the full Holy Week changes that that came um, uh, five years later. But uh, one of the the uh, prominent people in the movement said that uh, if we get this. Um, particular change through in uh, Holy Week, if we succeed in this, this, this first step, that in, in uh, 10 years or shortly uh, thereafter, we'll be able to change the whole liturgy. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Exactly mm-hmm. what happened. All right, so now we move to, to, to step two of the program here, which you identify as a simplified rubrics, uh, which uh, technically speaking, was the reduction of the rubrics to a, to a simpler form in, in uh, 1955. Um, so, first of all, maybe to cover one small point of terminology, which I'm not sure we covered in the, in, in the first show. I don't, I don't think we did. What do we mean when we say a rubric? Well, uh, rubric is the technical term in the, uh, the liturgy for the directions 
uh, that um, the priest is supposed to follow in the uh, celebration of Mass, or uh, what, uh, with regard to, say, the liturgical calendar, what feast you're supposed to celebrate on a particular day, or what prayers you're supposed to say when you recite the Divine Office. So it's, it's a practical direction. It's called a rubric because it's, it's from the Latin word for red, because it's printed in the book in, in red. Uh, so it's it's a uh, uh, direction to tell you say this prayer, make this gesture, uh, etc. Okay. So and you identify you say the justification offered for this reform was essentially threefold. Number one, authenticity. Number two, conformity to ancient traditions. And number three, pastoral fruitfulness. So mm-hmm. once again, we're seeing what was begun in 1951 you know, manifesting itself again here. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. So, uh, uh, exactly, and you have there too the 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 last point, the pastoral fruitfulness, and so on. That was uh, the idea of Jungman that we talked about last time. Uh, this concept of his concept of pastoral liturgy, which he spoke about a great deal, was uh, uh, essentially the idea again didacticism, liturgy as a classroom that you had to lower it and simplify it to the. Um, uh, uh, to the level of the people. And that was something that he saw as important. In the um, uh, simplification, uh, first of all, of the uh, rubrics in 1955, uh, what we had was uh, the uh, different directions that were given to the priest as far as what he was to do with the office, what feasts were to be celebrated, uh, and so on. These were all uh, reduced. And um, uh, the, the title of the document was a reduction of the rubrics uh, to a simpler form. So you, the, uh, the different saints' feast days were uh, either disappeared or were downgraded. Different other liturgical observances like um, octaves, which is to uh, was to celebrate the um, a particular feast, liturgical feast over a series of eight days, uh, these were reduced or abolished. So it was the uh, sort of cutting um, uh, cutting things down in this this simplification, and this is a process that you'll see. Uh, throughout the whole creation of uh, the uh, the process of creation of the new mass, that uh, you know it starts with the Easter Vigil. Then in, in 55 they change different things in in uh, the liturgical calendar, and uh, they know the the people who are doing this know that um, that they have an end in mind for um, uh, for their process. And they tried, it's an interesting thing to see when you see in 55, some of the things that happened in, in the simplification of the rubrics in 55. Um, you, there's a, uh, a downgrading of the a Feast of the Saints, different Feasts of the Saints, in terms of the commemorations that, um, uh, that they receive. And it's a slow process. And then you get to the point... Um, with the Novus Ordo in 1969 and the calendar changes there, where uh, you know you can get through say a whole sun, a whole 52 Sundays of the liturgical year, um, 
uh, as a, a going regularly to the Novus Ordo uh, without hearing one saint mentioned, except maybe Blessed Mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing you point out in, in this uh, in this part when you're you're speaking about the downgrading of feasts, but you also mentioned the upgrading of the rank of Sunday. I, I, I mean, what do you mean by upgrading the rank? Oh, the, um, the uh, by upgrading the rank of that, that's the um, uh, we could put it this way: the issue of whether a Sunday takes precedence over a uh, feast of uh, a feast of, of Blessed Mother or of an apostle. Okay, so mm-hmm. uh, 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 that's part of what what's called the the temporal cycle. In other words, the the different seasons of the church's liturgical year, you know, like Advent and the Christmas season, uh, Septuagesima, the Lenten season, okay? So so you have the, the Sundays, and this was one of the ideas of the people who wanted to change the liturgy. Let's hear less about the saints. Let's just hear about maybe the Sunday readings. So a, a classic example of how that, that works worked out is... Um, uh, in in these uh, rubrics is uh, something that takes place during the Advent season. Now, um, the traditional missal um, always prescribed that if the Feast of the Immaculate Conception fell on a Sunday, you celebrated the Feast of the Immaculate Conception because it was so important. And the uh, Sunday readings for the second Sunday of Advent took second place because of the the importance of that, that uh, um, uh, feast of Blessed Mother. Well, what happens in the uh, in these revised rubrics is, is since the men who created them essentially had a, a um, this program of downgrading uh, the feast of the saints. What happens is that the second Sunday of Advent takes feast. Is, takes precedence over the Feast of Blessed Mother. So she gets knocked out on her feast day, uh, and her feast day gets moved to the next day. So do you understand a little bit how it works? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, there might be, you know, I, I've spoken with people in the past who, they they sort of call these changes inconsequential. They say, well, it's not really that important. But I would bring up a quote here, and we're going to be talking about Bunini quite a bit throughout this uh, this entire episode because he is the the key player here, you know, the great architect of the new mass. He himself said that it was not in, uh, inconsequential. His quote on this document of the simplified rubrics was, quote, no doubt it is still too early to assess the full portent of this document, which marks an important tor- turning point in the history of the rites of the Roman liturgy. So he obviously sees this as a bridge, as, as, as something that is um, yet maybe another part of the construction process. I think, I think that's, that, that's evidently clear. And he also came up with something, you know, we talk a lot about conspiracy theories about uh, you know, the, the, the forces that were behind the change in the mass and you know, Benigni being a Freemason, which is, which is pretty solid, concrete, and, and provable. But he... Uh, uh, Bonini also gave a quote in the document, which of course sent all the conspiracy theorists to buzz when he said, quote, more than in any other field, a reform in the liturgy must be the fruit of an intelligent, enlightened collaboration of all the active forces, unquote. Active forces. Active forces. Uh, all the active forces. <laughs> so, I mean, Father, who, got it. <laughs> who were the active forces? What's he talking about? 
<laughs> You've got everything there, but the a pyramid, a uh, compass, and an all-seeing eye. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, when, when you bring up the enlightened forces. Well, it, uh, the interesting thing that, that, uh, about Bugnini uh, that, that uh, people should realize is that he wasn't uh, uh, speaking here, uh, you know, with hindsight from after Vatican II, but rather this was contemporary to the time that these changes were introduced. And he actually was the, the man who was the secretary of the commission uh, who produced these changes. So he he was on the inside of it, and this was was his baby. So he knew whereof he was speaking when he said it. It marks an important turning point in the history of the uh, history of the liturgy because he he could see the direction it was going, and his his comment about um, the collaboration of all the the enlightened forces um, uh, was uh, published in a. Um, uh, very lengthy commentary that he uh, wrote on these changes uh, explaining why these different things were done and uh, it was a commentary that was essentially read only by specialists in the sacred liturgy so the the people who were really into this idea of changing the sacred liturgy um, they got the message about what was going on mm-hmm for those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network. I am Justin Soder, and I am joined by Father Anthony Chicada, who is walking us through Chapter 3 of his book, Work of Human Hands. Um, we are now moving into Part 3, which is the new Holy Week. And um, this, is, this is something that uh, maybe, maybe this is sort of a dividing line amongst the traditional spheres today. Um, the... Uh, you know those who say the, the that the new rite of Holy Week was fine, and those who say that it was not. And Bonini's at work here again with this. And I want to just a small point of correction that the quote I referred to earlier about, about authenticity, conformity to the ancient traditions, and pastoral fruitfulness was actually speaking about New Holy Week, not the not the simplified rubrics. However, one point that I wanted to say, Father, is that you know since since words mean things, and Bonini is implicitly stating when he says that, that the church in her rite of Holy Week, as it was until 55, was not authentic, did not conform to ancient traditions, and the fields were barren in yielding any pastoral fruits. You know, why did, why did no one ask the question when the document was promulgated? I mean, obviously, Benini saw this as another stepping stone towards the ultimate goal, but I mean, I asked the question just as someone who wasn't alive, who, who tends to ask questions and be rather inquisitive of what people say, why was why was no one sounding the alarm bells here saying wait a second what's what's this guy really saying well <laughs> the uh his his statements appeared once again in 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 specialist publications and most of his readership were the uh, liberals of the liturgical movement who agreed with him uh unfortunately um you know many of the catholic clergy uh were not terribly well educated in the history of the liturgy and uh, they would not have, um, you know, come across something like this, uh, that uh, this, in effect, this denunciation of the old liturgy. So uh, that's kind of why it, it uh, uh, slipped by. A few specialists did, uh, you know, were aware of what was going on and were quite disturbed by um, what was being done. But um, uh, since Bugnini was in the driver's seat, 
uh, and was uh, very, very well connected, and he, he was a very good bureaucratic infighter and an extremely intelligent man. Um, he was uh, able to get his and his friend's program through. When, when I uh, see a statement like this, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't authentic, uh, the, the uh, conformity to ancient traditions and pastoral fruitfulness. My question is, well, how did the uh, chur- church survive for 1950 years with the old Holy Week until he got? To well, that's the question. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a million dollar question, isn't it? So um, yeah. So so perhaps, Father, you could give us a, a brief sketches. It is. And this is also interesting. You know how things change the more they stay the same. Um, this is now the, the experimental Easter Vigil was a was a temporary grant. Is that correct? That was a temporary grant for yeah, one that's year. Right. It, and, and, okay, and all right. They, so, uh, asked for you know reports on how that was going, and sure. then uh, we're we're at the we're at step three at this point with the new Holy Week. Correct. So so now we have the temporary quote unquote indult here being made permanent, which sounds a lot like things that are happening even today that people hear when, uh, much like the topic of communion in the hand, that uh, you know, supposedly it, it, was a, uh, it was just a, a very limited permission, experimental permission, and then it was made permanent. So perhaps you could, you could just give a, a, a brief sketch. You don't have to go through everything, but just, just a brief sketch of the, the radical changes made permanent in the, new, in the new Holy Week. Well, you had – it starts in Palm Sunday, and the uh, – um, uh, historically, there uh, was a, a very long and very beautiful ceremony for the blessing of palms. It was a uh, joining of Palm Sunday was the joining of, of uh, in effect, finally of two masses of the mass um, for the blessing of the palms, and then you had a procession and uh, another mass for uh, to um, commemorate the passion of our blessed lord so you had these these uh, two different ceremonies that were filled with all sorts of very beautiful uh, symbolism uh, in them uh, the uh, this uh, uh, was seen by the uh, innovators as something that really had to be changed everything had to be cut down and, and simplified so you instead of having this uh, in effect this this mass type ceremony for the blessing of palms which had a uh, historical basis uh simply uh, there was a, a simple ceremony very simple ceremony for the blessing of palms and the reading of the gospel before you have uh your procession uh there were a number of uh, very beautiful symbolic ceremonies um the knocking on the door of the the uh, church by the subdeacon symbolizing Christ going into Jerusalem. Uh, Many details like this, which simply were cut off and and simplified. Uh, Again, part of the Mass uh, disappears. The prayers at the foot of the altar disappeared in the Revised Rite. The uh, Passion account was truncated. Um, The last Gospel was uh, cut off at the end of the Rite. So it was what we're doing is you know we're not talking about a uh, introducing major uh, doctrinal horrors as you have in the new mass, but uh, this is you know to get people ready. So you have Palm Sunday, um, the uh, Maundy Thursday. Uh, what was done there is uh, the ceremony for the washing of feet was um, 
uh, actually um, put into the mass, which was uh, uh, something was very unusual. But then uh, other parts of the mass, the creed disappeared, the last gospel disappeared. Um, the uh, you see this 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 tendency to simplification uh, too in what was done for the reservation of the Blessed Sacrament. One of the the uh, beautiful and venerable. Uh, traditions that the church had um, uh, under the, the rubrics of the whole, uh, old um, Holy Week ceremonies was that you would have um, a very beautifully uh, decorated place where the Blessed Sacrament uh, would um, uh, uh, be placed and, and uh, enthroned once the uh, Holy Thursday Mass was uh, completed. And so there would be lilies and, and flowers and all sorts of elaborate decorations to honor the Blessed Sacrament. Well, um, this was uh, uh, scorned and looked down upon by the uh, reforms, and actually the instructions uh, were to uh, simplify uh, the um, reservation of the Blessed Sacrament there, and then uh, actually to cut off uh, the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament at midnight, whereas before the, the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament was, was constant until the service was held the next day. So it's this, this sort of diminishing of honor toward the Blessed Sacrament. Um, well, so that was another. Feature. I don't think these are inconsequential changes, are they? I mean, these are these are not minute details that we're just worried about the fine print here. These are these are major major things that are being changed. Yes, and and it's um, uh, what you get is you start to see an aggregate effect of what's being taken away and what's being um, uh, what's being simplified. Then the the next um, uh, the next day. Uh, is there's introduced uh, uh, Good Friday. Um, the um, in effect, what is introduced is a uh, communion service. Uh, previously on Good Friday, you had this very mystical uh, mass of the pre-sanctified, with which the Blessed Sacrament was brought from this this um, uh, repository with great solemnity in the hymn of Fortunatus, the Vexilla Regis Prodeunt, was uh, was sung as the Blessed Sacrament was triumphantly brought in. Uh, well, that all went. Uh, uh, that was uh, abolished. And uh, uh, the deacon uh, simply goes over and gets the ciborium and without any particular ceremony just, just brings it to the, uh, brings it into the church. So you have this, this disappearing honor given to the Blessed Sacrament. And then you have um, a essentially what is a little communion service, uh, during which um, the people uh, recite the Our Father together with the priest. And uh, that is something that's contra- it's a practice that's completely contrary to the history of the Roman liturgy. And you even have St. Augustine talking about that, where he says that the, um, in the uh, Western liturgy, uh, the priest who re- alone who represents Christ um, uh, offers this, this prayer, and the people do not participate in it, because it is considered a, a priestly prayer. So you, ha- you, have a, a shift, um, you have a shift like that on Good Friday. 
So, and, you know, there are more details like this, but you can start to see the way things are going. The lessening of uh, honor for the Blessed Sacrament, parts of the Mass are being cut out, things are being shortened, um, the uh, venerable tradition about the recitation of the Our Father is discarded and cut off in the um, uh, name of, of, uh, uh, of participation. So it's, it's one can see the direction that this is going. Mm-hmm. And I want to alert our listeners too. We hope that you're going to you're going to pick up a copy of the book here because Father goes into great great detail with with each one of these days, much more detail than he can spend here doing a broad sketch. But uh, each each change is laid out in numerical fa- uh, in numerical fashion. And you're able to get a very deep understanding at what I would call the forensic level from a liturgist as to what these changes were and what their significance really is and and, and why their removal is something that should really horrify all Catholics. So with that being said, Father, I think we can move on to the next part if if you're ready to move forward here. Well, one thing I would Uh, add to that at this point, uh, 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 Justin, would uh, actually be this, would be to uh, uh, build on your last comment that – individually a lot of these things seem like details and um, that uh, you know one or two the change of one or two details here and there might not seem all that significant but the um, uh, idea very much is that uh, in fact I I, uh, quote this uh, principle in my book that in the liturgy every word and every gesture is supposed to convey a theological idea so when you, you fool around with these gestures and uh, these words, uh, you uh, run the risk or you accomplish the goal if uh, you have bad intentions, as the innovators did, of uh, changing and altering belief. And uh, uh, that's why uh, these things start to add up. So with that said, I, I can move to, to the next... <laughs> Yes, which is the instruction part four, or step four, in our 11-step program here, uh, is the intru- uh, excuse me, is the instruction on sacred music. Now, I want to ask you, Father, why some people may view the topic of sacred music. I mean, obviously, if any, I'm sure many of our listeners uh, have, have had to endure the, the, the banal, no sort of sing-song, sappy nonsense. But, so I, I would ask you, maybe, maybe this is a self-answering question, but I still think it needs to be asked. Why, why was altering sacred music so key in advancing the revolution within the church? Well, the... Uh Sacred music is, you know, it is, uh, uh, has a great power to uh, reach the human spirit, and that's why the church uh, adopted it as part of the sacred liturgy. So uh, it's it's important. For, uh, uh, Saint uh, Saint Augustine says, "He he who uh, uh, sings prays twice." So you, there are all these these. Um, all this witness to the importance and the power of sacred music. Uh, the church uh, historically um, uh, promulgated a great deal of legislation to regulate sacred music. 
Um, the uh, there's a Monsignor Hay. I think Monsignor Hayworth did a, um, a whole study in the history of sacred music, and it's really quite uh, amazing how much uh, constantly the church was was uh, 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 had this concern to keep sacred music uh, proper to properly to con- convey the right ideas. So uh, naturally, the innovators recognize the importance of sacred music, and. Uh, had the idea that if you you can uh, alter certain elements of uh, sacred music, uh, you can alter the the content of the sacred liturgy as well. So mm. when this um, uh, this uh, instruction uh, fifty eight was uh, promulgated, um, many of the in fact the the uh, overwhelming uh, majority of the provisions in the instruction on sacred music recapitulated um, previous church teaching on uh, the nature of sacred music and on its importance. And the instruction contained many uh, interesting and valuable um, uh, ritual and, and theological points. Uh, however, uh, the uh, legislation also um, was uh, tampered with a little bit by the innovators, and they were able to um, uh, introduce, under the name of participation, uh, a, um, uh, some additional changes in the sacred liturgy that they hoped to achieve. You write here in Part 1, um, under the title... Uh advancing the revolution, talking about the implementation, you say, unfortunately, instead of limiting its scope to musical questions, the instruction also implemented or encouraged more practices which further advanced the modernist program. Number one, the instruction allows the congregation at low mass to participate by making vocal responses together at the various prayers the priest recites. This innovation called the dialogue mass, which virtually unknown in English-speaking countries, but the liturgical movement in France and Germany promoted it widely in those countries beginning in the, in the 1930s. This is something I remember. I have only seen one dialogue mass in my entire life, and it was extremely annoying. And uh, you you kind of speak to the destruction of the silence, which I think is key in low mass. So, mm-hmm. what is what is the function of the dialogue mass in terms of advancing the revolution? Well, we we, we have to explain, I think, to some of our listeners what it is. And the divi- uh, the dialogue mass, as it was envisioned by the liturgical movement, was. Um, supposed to have vocal participation by all the members of the congregation, so that that was the idea. And again, it's the um, uh, you can't have silence; you have to have common action all the time. So that was the the idea of the uh, members of the liturgical movement. So uh, Americans may not be familiar with the practice, but what this would involve is essentially the members of the congregation would uh, recite. Um, at a low mass, out loud, uh, the uh, prayers that, first of all, the, the prayers that the servers recite, the prayers at the foot of the altar, the confidior, and so on, respond to the different dominus vobiscums, and so on. Everyone is supposed to do this together. Uh, then uh, there were several degrees of this. Then uh, they uh, could recite the glory and the creed together with the priest. Uh, also, the Our Father, which, as we said, is, is uh, uh, unhistorical. Uh, they uh, could even then recite the propers of the Mass, the introit, uh, the the um, 
with the priest. So this was something that um, uh, uh, you had the congregation speaking up throughout the entire Mass. So this was this, this idea that we're um, uh, the only true participation. You can't have true participation if you have silence and rec- recollection. You, have to have, you always have to be doing something, which, of course, people know sounds like the Novus Ordo. Uh, where they never getting, leave you alone, you know. Yeah, I was getting ready to say you start, you know, the the, the sculpture is starting to take shape here, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. And uh, then uh, along with with this, um, in this uh, instruction, you know, amidst of all sorts of nice language from traditional documents about proper sacred music, so you have this this dialogue mass. Uh, introduced, and then uh, you have the uh, possibility of having a lay commentator who makes comments on what is going on at the Mass and who reads different texts in the vernacular uh, at you from a book. Uh, Now, um, those of us who uh, lived through the immediate uh, post-Vatican II changes, remember how surprising that was, but that actually was, was something that uh, was first floated in 1958 in this, um, uh, this instruction on sacred music, and it was permissible to do that. I remember as a, as a kid, um, I, of course, was, was altar boy, and we, well, I was trained in a parish where we had a very good formation in, in church music and, and how to assist at Mass and so on, I remember going to my father's parish um, on uh, vacation somewhere in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and they had one of these dialogue masses, and I thought it was the craziest thing in the world uh, that uh, we were forced to recite all these prayers out loud, and that one of my father's buddies, who was a postman in the town, that he was up in the sanctuary of the church reading stuff at us in English. I thought it was crazy. It was completely different. But it so was, that was, was uh, yeah, this was permitted. <laughs> that was so maybe that was the first um, the first fracturing of universality in, in the liturgy. Uh, that's that's interesting. You know, that, that was one of the things I was hoping, which I outlined in the in, in the first program. That I, was, you know, I'm glad you're sharing these 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 experiences because you know nowadays most most people who are in the Novus Ordo complain that you know the Novus Ordo differs from parish to parish to parish, and I'm, you know I saw that myself, of course. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, it, you know, and, and so this this may this is probably I mean by this time we you know we're at we're at what you know 1958 or so here yeah. you know we've we've had several steps in the process so now now we've reached the point of fracture here I guess you know and and it's just, that's that's very interesting yeah, I mean just for a kid because uh, the types of mass I was familiar with was you went to a, uh, uh, you could go to a low mass and you had your missile with you you say the rosary you were taught from fourth grade on how to use the missile there's no question about that and that's why the whole idea that people didn't understand the Latin Mass and that it had to be put in the vernacular is ridiculous. As a kid, I understood it. I knew what was going on. You know, I was taught properly. And the, um, so there was that. Uh, there was the low Mass. And then, well, as far as singing and participation, we learned how to do that in Latin. You know, we sang the Kyrie and the Gloria, uh, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei. You know, we sang the Requiem Mass. We did hymns in Latin. We did some you know, hymns at the end in English, and all with the traditional liturgy. So if you wanted to have vocal participation in singing, you, you just, it's a question of uh, 
just uh, training people to do it, training kids to do it. You don't have to overthrow the whole system. But, of mm-hmm. course, they did have to overthrow the whole system because they hated it. <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so, so I, I don't think we can escape this topic. You know, we're at 1958, which is a very, very important year. Mm-hmm. Obviously, okay. So this this document, the instruction on sacred music, was the last of Pius XII's reign. Uh, mm-hmm. it, this was this this occurred in, in in September, and and he died in October. Correct. Mm-hmm. And, That's uh, right. He was it, uh, it, uh, it, he was actually quite sick at this point. Yeah, he was he was gravely ill. So this question here is in two parts: Part A and Part B. Number one, how do we view such documents uh, coming mm-hmm. from coming from Pius XII? In Part B. It's kind of another hat tip to our, our conspiracy friends that they posit that there's no way that in Pius's condition he was gravely ill that he would have been able to scrutinize these documents as he normally would. Now, is that grasping at straws, or are we to take these things at face value? That's that's well. Part B. Either the, there, there is a uh, uh, Pius the Twelfth is a very complex character, and he was um, if you look at his uh, biography biographies, he was wowed by people who were intellectuals. And um, he um, had, um, uh, you know, a number of people like this around him. Unfortunately, they were the wrong kind of people. Uh, he had uh, Montini, who eventually figured out, uh, later Paul VI, was, uh, you know, his undersecretary of state. He eventually got rid of him. But he had, had Bea as his confessor, who was one of the worst ecumenists at Vatican II. Um, so the, part of the... Uh, he was a man who, on the level of theory, was really very good. His, his Mediator Day on the Sacred Liturgy was uh, terrific and, and um, uh, you know, unassailable uh, in terms of principle. But in, uh, when it comes to when it came to applying a lot of the principles and uh, appointing people to do it, he was not a very good judge of character. But Bugnini, in fact, um, uh, says in his um, uh, memoirs of the liturgical reform, he says that um, uh, we were able to get through, uh, get these changes approved, even during the illness of Pius X because of uh, the influence of Monsignor Montini, the undersecretary of state, and de Bea, who was Pius XII's confessor. So, you know, it's, it's not fair to say that uh, there was a conspiracy element in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last part of this, uh, the last part of this section here, I, and I think you you sum this up uh, very very succinctly in describing Pius the Twelfth. You said that you know, the moderns were patient and had figured out the Pius the Twelfth had a con- had essentially a policy of controlled concessions that they would use to their advantage. That they would that they would kind of patiently go along with his game. That he thought that he could he could keep this thing within reason by controlled concessions. Never thought about it that way, and that's an interesting point. And and the thing is though that I don't take original credit for that point. Actually, there was a. Um uh, writer who was very much in, uh, I forget the name of the person, was very much in, in favor of all the liturgical reforms, and that was his analysis of it, that it was control concessions. And I think that that was a very good insight. Uh, it, uh, but it uh, simply, uh, it simply didn't work. Uh, it simply didn't work in terms of, of uh, keeping the uh, people who wanted to tinker with the sacred liturgy off of the um, 
uh, you know, get, getting them away from the sacred liturgy. They just became more and more powerful, unfortunately. Okay, so moving on to uh, step five here, we now reach the year 1960, and Pius XII has died, and uh, now we have Ron Colley, who became John the Twenty Third, and you know we have a new quote unquote pope and a new direction. He and and so the 1959 announcement of Vatican Council II being convoked. Um, where where does this now begin to take the liturgical revolution with this new code of rubrics of 1960? Well, the uh, this is tied in, of course, with Vatican II. The interesting thing about Roncalli is is that um, the um, people in the liturgical movement uh, who wanted to change the liturgy regarded him as a friend, as a as as a uh, buddy, and uh, he had he had supported uh, their efforts in a number of uh, instances. And in fact, there's a very famous uh, man in the liturgical movement, Dom Lambert Baudouin, um, who from the uh, virtually from the, the time of Pius the Tenth um, in the uh, early part of the 20th century, had been um, pushing changes in the sacred liturgy and who had been trying trying to use a use the liturgy as as uh, a way of promoting ecumenism and promoting religions coming together. You put aside doctrine and you worship together. Uh, this was was his idea, and he was um, he actually was quite a buddy of of Roncalli. There are a number of of anecdotes about that. And Bodon was uh, uh, quite ill, and when Pius the the twelfth died, uh, Bodon said to uh, he was um, ill and, and himself probably dying at that point, but he said that the uh, cardinals really don't. Um, understand things. They don't understand what's going on. Uh, they are capable of electing Roncalli. And if they do, Roncalli is capable of calling a council and consecrating ecumenism. This is a very interesting uh, insight from uh, Baudouin. So he knew what was coming, and sure enough, that's what, what happened. So when Roncalli announced the um, that he was uh, convoking uh, Vatican II. Uh, at that point, the um, people who had been working on these uh, different liturgical changes during the time of uh, uh, Pius XII um, were uh, wondering a little bit of what they were going to do. Uh, they decided to put together a code of rubrics and to summarize the changes that had, had uh, gone on uh, before during the reign of Pius XII and to uh, make some additional changes uh, of their own. And so this is the, the code of rubrics of uh, 1960 and the missal of uh, what is called the, the Missal of John the Twenty-Third which is published in 62, and this is the, the version that was uh, approved uh, by uh, uh, Benedict XVI and Sumorum Pontificum. So it was the, the, the Missal of uh, John the Twenty-Third. So it, it consolidated the changes that came before it. It added even more changes. It uh, downgraded still further the um, uh, 
devotion to the saints in the sacred liturgy. Uh, it cut and it simplified. The legislation very much was uh, done with uh, Vatican II in view. That the uh, idea was that Vatican II, uh, John the Twenty Third said, was going to lay down the higher principles for a total reform of the liturgy. So it was the sixty-two was an interim um, uh, missile. It was not something that was made to uh, last forever, as it were. Well, one of the things you speak about in this uh, in this, this this step number five here uh, is you said that, um, that that the that the new coda rubrics was was really definitively laying down the foundation for fundamentally changing everything. Mm-hmm. And um, you know you said the language of the coda rubrics of the Roman breviary and the missal of 1960 and how it differs from all codes prior. Uh, and you started to see this language creep in, uh, language such as it is fitting or it should be. Uh, this, number one, can you speak about this, it is fitting and it should be, and was this, a, was this language sort of a foreshadowing of the Vatican II language? Yeah, very much so, because um, what you see there is, um, in that sort of language, you're setting up options. Uh, you're not really regulating the liturgy. You're, you're, you're saying, well, it would be good if you did this. And this is the, the, the uh, first shift as far as the language of legislation itself. Uh, Pius Twelfth in uh, Mediator Day uh, very uh, clearly laid out the um, uh, vision of, of, of the sacred liturgy as, as, as you had uh, doctrine, you had discipline, uh, in other words, the rules of the church, and he had ceremonies, doctrine, discipline, and ceremonies. So the church regulated things because uh, every word and gesture did have a theological idea. So um, you didn't, uh, prior to that, have language in the rubrics that said, well, it's fitting, you can do this you know, if you want, or omit it, or do something else. But you start to find then this, this language in um, the uh, legislation of, of uh, John the Twenty Third. It starts to appear, and what happens is that that's part of a the Jungmann's theory on pastoral liturgy that you um, you know try to accommodate yourself to the needs of the people rather than have them sort of elevated to what's going on in the sacred liturgy. That's one thing, and then. You get to the language of options, finally, in 1969 in the Novus Ordo, where you have a whole bunch of options uh, that you can choose to do or not to do. So, so we see this, this opening, uh, really, first of all, in the legislation of uh, uh, John the Twenty-Third. Mm. You know, they kind of use Bishop Sanborn's uh, you know, airplane analogies here, which I love. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, could you imagine going to an airport and you're wanting to go to London and you're wanting to get on the right flight to go to London, and the, they tell you, well, it's fitting you should take this flight to London. You, you, you could take this flight to London, but you don't have to. Uh, or they, they could say that it's, it's, it's fitting that the plane has all four engines that work. Sure. You know, but Absolutely. the pilot... Uh, that's left to the discretion of the pilot, and if he wants to go with three, two, or one, well, you know, fine, uh, whatever is, is fitting. <laughs> so, 
so. It should be fueled up, but it doesn't have to be fueled up. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> so. Okay, so lastly, Father, let's identify one other, uh, one other name here uh, who popped up in this section, and we'll see further down the road here. Who was Father Carlo Braga, and what was his role? A very interesting revolution. character. He was not, uh, he, uh, while in the history of the New Mass, people identified certainly uh, Anibale Bugnini, uh, as as a, a bad guy and a heavyweight, and as a major influence in the destruction of the traditional mass, uh, Braga was was uh, someone who actually had uh, a great deal to do with it, and was in fact very influential. He, like Bugnini, was of Vincentian, and he was younger than Bugnini, and he served as sort of his his uh, assistant. Uh, in the uh, preparation of the uh, liturgical reforms uh, uh, during the 50s. And he wrote the uh, Code of Rubrics for um, the uh, Missal of John the Twenty-Third. Uh, so he, he pulled everything together uh, for that. And he was also involved in the uh, uh, creation of the new Mass. Again, he was functioned kind of as, as Bugnini's secretary. Uh, he was a total modernist. Uh, he was the uh, one who was responsible for writing the 1969 general instruction uh, on the new Mass. This was the introductory document that had the... the ritual instructions, but also had the theological ideas behind the new Mass. And uh, this had the infamous definition of the Mass as, uh, as, an, uh, as an assembly, as an assembly of people, rather than as a um, sacrifice offered to Almighty God. And the, uh, this was the definition that sent so many uh, uh, good and faithful traditional Catholics ballistic because they said rightly it was heretical, it was modernist, and it was Lutheran. And it was, was Braga who was responsible for that document as well, so both for the the rubrics of, of John the Twenty Third and for this this heretical nineteen sixty nine general instruction. So he's he was a, a significant player. And uh, even after uh, even after the um, uh, controversy over the general instruction, he still defended it. Uh, wrote articles defending it. So and, and so he had his, his his finger in the pie with Bugdini. Well, for those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network, sponsored by Roman Catholic Archive. I'm your host, Justin Soder, and I am joined by Father Anthony Chicada, the author of the book, Work of Human Hands. And today we've been discussing the steps along the process to the creation of the new Mass. We've, we've covered the first five. We're moving into part six here. We want to remind you that Work of Human Hands is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be easily obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. 
So, Father, moving into part six, and this is the one that I have the hardest time with because I really get angry uh, when I read this document. It's a document, it's, it, it's probably the most vile Vatican II documents, and it's Vatican II's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium. Um, this, the utter disdain exhibited in the language of this document for the traditional sacred liturgy, I, I think, it, it is difficult not to infuriate anyone who's a serious Catholic and, and, and has an appreciation for the richness and the beauty of the liturgy. And I would say my, my impression of this after reading this section in the book is the modernists really tore off their masks and let it be known exactly how they felt about the sacred liturgy in this document. Would you agree? Well, uh, uh, yes, I, I would say in retrospect, okay? Right. Uh, the, the, um, uh, but the way that modernists operate is through equivocation and uh, ambiguity and through contradiction. So uh, we, it's, it's easy for us to uh, really to look back and to see where the problems lie in this document. Uh, but mm-hmm. perhaps at the, at the point that um, uh, it was being discussed, it wasn't that easy maybe for people to see it precisely because of the cleverness of uh, the uh, men who put the document together. Right. I would also remind our listeners here that we just moved from the year 1960 to 1963. I should have announced that to begin with. So now we're in the year of 1963. Uh, Father, you say in the book that, quote, had John XXIII decided not to convoke Vatican II, the process of chipping away at the edifice of the Roman liturgy would have probably continued at a more leisurely pace and eventually encountered opposition. That's interesting. Why do you say this? Well, uh, uh, at uh, this point, actually, at the end of the uh, 60s, there were some people who were, um, uh, some liturgists, experts in the sacred liturgy, who were getting nervous about what was, uh, uh, what was going on. There were some figures in, in the Vatican who um, were worried about it. Uh, the, one of the papal um, masters of ceremonies actually gave the, a, um, a conference against uh, uh, some of these changes in the, uh, I believe, in 1960 in Paris. So there were people who were starting to um, uh, uh, worry about it and uh, who were complaining. But the difficulty is that uh, with the calling of Vatican II, then the... Uh, bad guys in the liturgical movement saw this as a golden opportunity because they could use the force of uh, the uh, authority, as it were, of, of, of the council to push through their changes. So it wouldn't be a step here and a step there, henceforth. It would be a whole change in the principles that would be applied. And John the Twenty-Third hinted at that in his um, uh, uh, Rubicarum Instructum, his uh, document promulgating the 1960 changes, 6062, that the the council would look at the higher principles. So the the bad guys saw the council as something that would really give uh, an impetus and a force to the changes that they wanted to introduce. Um, okay, so Father, could you briefly talk about the draft of the document and its contents and what exactly that it said? Well, again, uh, Bugnini appears and is you know the, the spider at the center of the web and in exactly the uh, right place 
uh, for modernists and the wrong place for Catholics at exactly the right or the wrong moment. Uh, he is uh, involved with the uh, pre-Vatican II Commission on uh, the Sacred Liturgy. He is the secretary of it. And if he collates and brings together, he was a genius of organization. You really have to uh, give him credit. The different suggestions and so on for uh, uh, for a draft. He ends up, uh, in effect, uh, writing the uh, draft of the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy. Uh, naturally, he has a, uh, uh, and it ends up, of course, the draft with a, a, a slant to the program that the bad guys want. Uh, now, the, there were murmurs at this point. Uh, he had, uh, in fact, had a reputation as uh, he himself says as being a, uh, uh, a, a progressivist and a modernist and an iconoclast. He actually quotes that in his, his, his memoirs. And so there was <coughs> opposition at that point. And uh, stories about what the draft of the Sacred Liturgy, uh, of the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy, was going to contain started circulating. And in the, uh, it was the, the church musicians uh, in Rome uh, were horrified. And they referred to Bugnini, in fact, as the number one enemy of Latin. They knew that he, uh, uh, he and the, the uh, modernists wanted to uh, overthrow Latin in the sacred liturgy. But so, uh, what happened is, is there was argument, of course, uh, back and forth. And um, the uh, cardinal, who was the head of the Congregation of Rites, which was the a church department, part of the curia, uh, papal, it's called a congregation, uh, the, the uh, papal department that uh, takes care of liturgical legislation was uh, Cardinal Cicognani. And um, uh, Cicognani had a, uh, you know, conservative and traditional um, liturgical ideas, very much so. Uh, but he went back and forth, and he, he was reluctant. He had to approve the draft of the Constitution before it would be um, uh, presented to the council. So he, uh, as, as head of that, that congregation, and there are people, other people, who were working against it, and who had put together an alternate draft. But uh, Cicignani finally caved in, and they say with tears in his eyes, he signed the document. And then um, uh, five or four days later, he died. But Bugnini said that everything was saved by the fact that for, for the liturgical reform, that Cicignani signed the document. Wow. That is that is quite fascinating. I mean, you talk about conspiracy theorists thinking, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I mean, some people say he died of a broken heart. So, um, well, he may have, uh, and then yeah. uh, what happened, however, was uh, the successor to Cicignani was uh, Arcadio Larona, Cardinal Larona, and he was uh, uh, conservative, uh, and he had uh, you know conservative views. And he got rid of Bugnini, which is very interesting. That is he, interesting. 
um, he had a um, uh, the uh, you know one asked well why would John the twenty third appoint someone who was conservative but remember that the in the curia and in any institution you have political considerations too and, and different. Um, uh, uh, in the uh, a, a big bureaucracy, you have different people that you have to keep ha- happy. So uh, Lorona was uh, Lorona was uh, appointed, but he uh, Im- immediately got rid of Bugnini, um, and he uh, not only see what, what what happened is Bugnini was the secretary of the commission for preparing the document, but then. Once the council started, there was another commission to be appointed, and Lorona was involved with that. Well, he got rid of Bugnini. He wasn't going to let him um, uh, be the secretary of the commission once the council started, and he even tried to get Bugnini fired, and he succeeded in getting him fired from, I think, every position but one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he was, but he was in fired any from event, his position of... I was going to say he was fired from his posi- his position of professor of liturgy at the Pontifical Lateran University too. Yeah, which was a very prestigious thing. Prestigious. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, very, uh, very uh, much so. So, but so during the council itself, Bugnini was on the outside um, uh, looking in, very much the outside. Until, until, until we have <laughs> John the Twenty Third's death in 1963, uh, that's and right. uh, so what impact? Gosh, <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I'm giving you softball questions here. <laughs> what, what impact did Montini's ascension have after John XXIII's death on, on Vatican II, on the Sacred Liturgy? I mean, we, you know, it, it's sort of like the games can begin now. Oh, well, yeah. The uh, thing is that uh, Montini was um, new Bugnini, right? And so they, they, uh, from when... Um, uh, Bugnini was trying to get his his liturgical changes approved by Pius XII, and on top of it, uh, Montini had a um, uh, he very much approved of these revolutionary liturgical ideas, and the, uh, he celebrated uh, youth masses when he was a chaplain in the 30s with uh, 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 the uh, college students standing around the altar. Uh, you know, just as you would see after the introduction of the Novus Ordo, he had he was a fan of um, Joseph Jungmann's teaching on uh, ecclesiology. That this uh, he he wrote in his his journal how wonderful this was. As a um, as Archbishop of Milan, he pushed uh, the liberal ideas of the liturgical movement of Jungmann and of of Bouyer. So uh, of course. Uh, when uh, he was elected, then the game changed once again for uh, Bugnini and the uh, uh, and the modernists. So you you had the the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy finally uh, passed on uh, November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, and the um, uh, then at uh, that point it was. A uh, done deal. Uh, the the uh, that this document was was in place to uh, press along these revolutionary ideas for the sacred liturgy. 
I would also note that it's rather ironic, that date, isn't it? November the 22nd, 1963. Some, yeah. of, our, some of our conspiracy people are, are, are getting their fill tonight here, right? You know, for, for those maybe who aren't in the American audience and don't well, recognize I, that. <laughs> that was the day that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. John F. Kennedy, yes. And it was also the day of the um, uh, dedication of my minor seminary in Milwaukee, so there were three things. But I hope <laughs> Oliver Stone is listening in uh, yeah. that, <laughs> for his we'll have, for we'll have a documentary next, coming up for you soon. <laughs> conspiracy movie, yes. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so so Father, let's let's talk about the creation of the Concilium and uh, Montini's move to bypass the Sacred Congregation of Rights. Why is this significant? Okay, and, well, see, the what Sacred was the Congregation of Rights. Um, as we said, it's you know the, the liturgy department of the Vatican. That staffed was staffed by people who had a um, uh, who had the traditional outlook on the sacred liturgy, doctrine, discipline, and ceremonies. And uh, they uh, were uh, you know they understood the history of the sacred liturgy and uh, were very careful and did not want to see radical changes introduced uh, in the sacred liturgy. And in fact, they had this. Um, uh, Bugnini realized this even in the the fifties, uh, and in his uh, biography, he talks about uh, how he, um, in effect, surprised the uh, members of the Congregation of Rites with some of the proposals he had to change Holy Week and the calendar and so on. So they weren't kept up to date. They were sort of closed out on that. So uh, in any event, they were seen, especially with Cardinal Arona in there, as the uh, enemies of radical liturgical change. So Paul VI <coughs> wanted the change, um, uh, figured that he would create a new entity to um, uh, reform or to change the sacred liturgy in the way that uh, uh, he wanted it changed, and according to the, the principles of the modernist and liturgical movement. So he created this entity called Concilium, uh, and um, its um, full title is something like the um, Council or the, the, the Committee to Implement the uh, Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. And it's, it's referred to as, as a Concilium. So it was a new outfit. And he... Um, the Montini gave uh, Concilium the power to create these new rites and to do, in effect, an end run around the um, Sacred Congregation of Rites. So, um, and then reserved to himself, finally, the uh, approval of these rites. So this was a, a uh, terrific bureaucratic triumph for the modernists, because Bugnini was the uh, man who had, you know, shepherded the revolution so far. So he and, put together and, this. Yes, uh, I was going to say, so and, and, and who did who did he appoint to be the secretary of that? Oh well, yes, of course. So 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 it's so what you have. So helping Bugnini is his friend Braga, and uh, this it was a, a fairly giant organization, and they got people from. Uh, all over the world to work on different aspects of the liturgical reform. This is where Bugnini was a uh, terrific organizer. And 
you know, assigned out um, um, different liturgists to, uh, you know, some to work on the calendar, some to work on the lectionary, some to work on the breviary, some to work on the collects of the Mass, some on the chants of the Mass, some on the order of the Mass. And so it was a very, um, um, you know, this very broad consultation, but he was, uh, he was at the center of it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, but his, his little committee was at the center of it. So, um, um, sort of guiding the way in which it would go to ensure that it would go according to the principles of the revolution. Well, you know, we can't finish this section up, Father, without talking about the role of Protestants in the reform of the liturgy. Um, you, you quote Monsignor William Baum, uh, later, later uh, you know, Cardinal Baum. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he, he's talking about the Protestants, and this is interesting because Bonini denied the Protestants had any role in this, but he quoted and he says, quote, they being the Protestants, they are not there simply as observers, but consultants as well, and they participate fully in the discussions on Catholic liturgical renewal. It wouldn't mean much if they were just listened, but they contributed, unquote. Now, of course, you know, Benini denies this, but if, if any of our listeners want to read more into this, go pick up the book, The Ryan Flows Into the Tiber, by Father Ralph Wilkin, where he, he confirmed many times over that the Protestants were there, they were, and they were integral to the changes in the liturgy. You know, this, the, um, there were six um, so-called observers um, uh, that were um, consulted by the um, uh, concilium, by the people who were putting together the uh, new liturgical rites for the church. And um, Anglicans, Lutherans, uh, a, um, a pres- Presbyterian, Calvinist, someone from uh, Taizé. So uh, they did have... Um, they did uh, certainly have input into the uh, creation of the new mass. So it, it was not a, uh, you know, it was not simply a, uh, simply a passive role. And uh, also, <clears throat> what you have to realize is the um, whole uh, outlook of the people who were revising the liturgy at that time was to make uh, a, a new liturgy that would be ecumenically acceptable. Because remember, the roots of the um, liturgical movement, we talked about this dumb uh, Baudouin, was to use the liturgy as an element of ecumenism. You put aside differences in doctrine and you worship together. So this was very much in the... Um, uh, 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 very much at the forefront of the way of thinking of the people who um, were creating these new rites, and they, they uh, you know, intentionally uh, selected language and, and uh, concepts that they tried to make appealing to non-Catholics, and uh, mm-hmm. they, many of them, uh, uh, many of the people from the so-called Catholic side, you know, admitted this. Uh, admitted this that that, that the 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 language that they used was um, uh, specifically chosen with ecumenism in mind. Well, the last quote from this uh, from this uh, the step six here uh, was from 
Bonini, and it, and, it's, and it kind of wraps up this, this part we're talking about here, where you know, Bonini boldly announced the principal aim of the liturgical reform was ecumenism. And the quote at the end of the section you said from him is, quote, the love for souls and the desire to ease in every way the path of union for the separated brothers led the church to make these difficult sacrifices, removing any stumbling block that could even slightly present an obstacle or a cause for discomfort, unquote. So what was that obstacle? Uh, would you say it's Roman Catholic theology in the Mass? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, the, uh, you know, that was the point. Um, one of the commentators on this um, uh, general instruction on the, the, the uh, introduction to the new Mass that uh, we're going to talk a little more about later um, said that um, the, the words uh, were chosen specifically to, for this reason, that, that the uh, term, for instance, assembly and memorial, these were chosen because these were useful and, and very precious terms in, to use in ecumenical dialogue. So th that was explicitly um, explicitly a part of it. And you see this in um, the collects of, of the new mass very much, where the the um, uh, notion of, of um, heresy that that's the that's something that's you know simply removed because you you don't talk about that you don't talk about those doctrinal uh, differences. So the, this. Uh, uh, Bugnini announced the, the principle that you mentioned, I think, in 64, and they carried it out, you know, ruthlessly. Mm -hmm. So that takes us to 1964, and moving into, we're going to combine these two parts, because they're, they're, they're rather short, and we can, we, we can get through them rather quickly here. You have uh, Step 7 and Step 8, starting in 1964, with changes in the order of the Mass, and then in 1965, we have Mass Facing the People. Um, mm -hmm. So perhaps you could discuss that, that document on the change of the order of the Mass in 64, and then, of course, logically leading into, now we have uh, such terms, or su such terminology, you have this liturgy of the word and this, that, and the other, and we have mass facing the people. So can we talk about those two things quickly? Sure. Uh, so what's happening here is uh, the, to implement the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy, they, they took the uh, Tridentine Mass, as it were, the traditional order of Mass as it was in the 62 Missal, and started uh, altering the rubrics and chopping bits of it out and putting parts of it into the vernacular. So you had the, uh, at, at uh, this point, you had uh, things like the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Sanctus, and Agnus Dei. Those went into the vernacular. You had the um, uh, layman, you know, you had the, the, um, um, uh, the postman, the post-delivery, uh, reading the um, epistle and gospel in the vernacular from a microphone while the priest was at the altar. Uh, so you, uh, you cut out any commemorations of saints at the Mass. You cut out part of the prayers at the foot of the altar. You lopped off the last gospel. Um, it, so uh, this was the, uh, you're taking parts away from the traditional Mass. And you're getting people, it's, it's like boiling the frog. You're getting people used to these uh, liturgical changes. So that's what you get in, in 64, even before the council was, um, was over. And I remember as a kid, um, and I mentioned this many times before, that the reaction you know, against these changes that I had, that this struck me as so strange and so disrespectful in uh, mm -hmm. you know, 64 as an eighth grade. 
you know. A lot of us had that reaction. And a lot of lay people <clears throat> had that reaction as well, especially, interestingly enough, converts um, who would speak of it as the mass being Protestantized. <laughs> so, um, so, we, so you had so we that in the 64, and then they flipped the altar around. You had mass facing yeah. the people. And, and How shocking that was, was that? Well, I mean, you never... Uh, you were still getting over the change of... Uh, the, uh, uh, the the postman in the sanctuary. Uh, you're still getting over that, and then uh, the altar comes around, and uh, the priest is saying mass on a uh, sort of ill-constructed plywood table. Uh, and uh, I remember that very vividly. With the that it was sort of shaking a little bit as 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 he was there as an altar boy trying to serve this mass. So that was. Uh, you know, strange. And then he, they, they cut out, um, uh, you know, certain ritual gestures too that the priest would make, signs of the cross, and so on. Uh, then what you get is uh, because the people who are creating the new mass know exactly what they're going. They start to introduce the new terminology. So they introduce the idea of instead of mass of the catechumens, they call it the liturgy of the word. And the mass of the catechumens was sort of I guess considered you know negative and um, uh, you know maybe anti-ecumenical with people actually were converting to the Catholic faith. So we'll get that idea out of the way. We'll call it the liturgy of the word, and then instead of uh, saying the liturgy of the faithful, uh, you refer to that second part of the mass as the liturgy of the Eucharist. And uh, and what you do is by using the term liturgy, you make both concepts uh, equal, that uh, before you, your principal parts of the Mass were the offertory, uh, the uh, consecration, the communion. Now you have these two parts of the Mass, both identified as the liturgy, and then you're told in the new theology that these are basically equal because Christ is present in his word, in the Gospel, um, when it's proclaimed, and he's also present in the Eucharist, too. But these two things are the same level, so we're going to uh, also maybe have a shrine in our church for a Bible. So by the alteration of this language that you see at this point, uh, a new, another idea is uh, uh, being introduced that downplays the idea of the real presence. Hmm. You know, and and it's presented in a way where people say, "Oh, well, it's you know, it sounds sincere. Yes, you know, Christ is present in His Word, and I mean, it, you know, it, it, it it's a real sly move." Oh yeah, it is, and and, and they, uh, the the uh, modernists and the heretics, uh, um, thrive on uh, on ambiguity, and uh, on uh, or by giving a standard concept. Um, theological concept, something that in reality is another, that means something else in reality. And so that's what they're they're fooling around with the idea of presence. And uh, there, instead of the real and substantial presence, they're talking about Christ's presence in his word, and that's merely spiritual presence. It's not real and substantial. So, uh, but that's what's going on. And they're, they're right. on the, that's step two there at that point of boiling the frog. And the water is, is getting hotter. 
Yeah. Okay. So, so moving on here to to step nine in our eleven step program. Hopefully, we'll be sober by the end of this. I think. But anyway, uh, you know, we, we, we have we have part nine: the ritual changes of the mass of 1967. Now, how did the issuance of this document really help achieve the long term goals of the reformers of the liturgical movement? Well, what happens? What happened here is they they get a. Uh, they're taking as much as they can away from the traditional mass uh, uh, in order to make it look like uh, the novus ordo that they're the the new order of mass that they're going to uh, promulgate and spring on the people in a year or two. So the, uh, this is the next step of of cutting things off the mass, sort of streamlining as it were. Then you get a um, uh, you eliminate the genuflections, different gestures. The priest no longer holds his fingers together. Um, that's one of the um, distinctive things that you'll see at a, a Trinidad Mass, where the priest has his thumb and forefinger together, lest any, it's out of respect for the Blessed Sacrament, lest any particle be there and lest, of, of the sacred host, lest it fall. But that is uh, made to disappear. So you get a, a series of uh, series of changes, um, a series of changes like this, uh, where it's it's more and more is being uh, stripped away from the mass. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, you talk about in the section too that we have you know more noise in the mass now, and so far as the encouragement <laughs> of of the of the laity to sing song their songs of praise after communion, and you know this is interesting because. You know, occasionally I'll see a Novus Ordo, be it, you know, at, you know, someone's house, you know, has a television on, or, or, you know, if I have to go to a funeral or a wedding or something, and it, what really strikes me is all the noise, the talk, 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 noise, 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 and, you know, this is, I can't help but think this is obviously by plan here, so, you know, you know, we have that going on, and then we also have in this document that black for Requiem Mass is no longer required, paving mm-hmm. the way, obviously, for all the white we see today in the Novus Ordo funeral life celebrations rather than the color of mourning, black, and, uh, you know, we have white to celebrate the life of the person. And this is, this is a radical transformation of the understanding of death and purgatory and praying sure. for, prayers for the souls of the dead. So you get, uh, I mean, there are a whole bunch of things, uh, just that are tied in there, okay? And, and uh, you know, your point on noise, remember the principle is the only uh, participation worthy in the name is vocal, okay? And then by this time in the Vatican II Church, they've, by 67, uh, it's anything goes as far as music, uh, the any of the ideals that were expressed in '58 uh, about the quality sacred music should have all that goes out the window, and you get uh, the um, uh, you, you get uh, you know trite little ditties that people are singing. Uh, you get the Negro spirituals. Uh, you get guitar music. Um, uh, all of this stuff is. Um, permitted uh, in uh, the sacred liturgy, so you get this 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 great wall of noise, uh, and people um, uh, you know urging you to participate. So you get that, and that your theological change then is it turns from a um, 
uh, a, a true act of worship where you're uh, something that's vertical, that's aimed at uh, adoring Almighty God and worshiping Him properly into a sort of a common meeting with stuff that's supposed to keep you entertained. So you get the noise factor there, and then what you mentioned uh, at this point of the uh, abolition of the black for the requiem uh, masses for the burial of people, the whole theology of, of death, the whole idea there is changed in the practical order. And uh, in a little later, uh, about two years later, I uh, started uh, actually um, functioning as, as, as a church organist, playing the organ in, in different churches, actually playing for funerals. And by that time, the funerals had turned into a canonization ceremony, that you weren't oh, yeah. praying for the repose of someone's soul, but you're saying hallelujah, and that, uh, you know, Uncle Oscar has gone straight to heaven, where, uh, you know, this his, his uh, golf game, he, you know, he'll always be shooting under par, and, uh, uh, you know, that uh, uh, he'll have an open tab at the, the bar in the 19th hole. You know, so it was. It it, it turned into a um, uh, humanist canonization thing, and not just in one place. Um, you know, it wasn't just one abuse, but it was was global. I I played the organ in a lot of churches, and I listened to a lot of goofy funeral ser- uh, sermons, and that's the sort of thing that you were getting. But th- these the priests who were doing that were taking their cues from the liturgical changes. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, you know, the, the, yeah, it, it changes their belief. Well, I think something too. You know, if for, I'm sure many of our listeners have had to go to a Novus Ordo funeral, and I think it really is trying to suppress human nature. I mean, human human beings. You know, we you know we're we're, we're obviously part physical and, and you know part spiritual. You know, we 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 want to mourn our dead. And yet that is being taken away from us. And so, so you see people with these fake plastered smiles and, oh, I'm so happy. I mean, it, it, but yet you know, they're fighting back tears. And, I mean, there's this real, real inner chaos going on, that this, this whole idea that we're not going to mourn our dead anymore, but we're going to canonize them. It's, it's really sick. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it is, in fact, it's a denial of human nature. Denial of human nature. And it's... Um, uh, also is to, uh, you know, gloss over the reality of death and the uh, fact that, that people commit sins that have to be atoned for, uh, you know, if not in this life, in the next. So it's, it's all a... Um, uh, so many things are lost uh, with this liturgical change. And um, the doctrinal ideas... Uh, you you had this this shift almost immediately, and it was affected by the sacred liturgy. Right. It, it, you mentioned the most astounding change in this document uh, is the permission for the recitation of the canon in the vernacular. Why is this the most astounding change in in your mind? <laughs> well, the um, <laughs> uh, so they they flip the altar around and and the guitars are going in the background, but the idea of the canon is the canon of the Mass was always considered something uh, sacred, particularly sacred, and a, uh, a, a, a sacred and a quiet moment. And the, uh, the, the priest there at the altar, 
uh, uh, you know, leading as it were this whole procession of the people toward Christ. The whole all the mystical uh, symbols, symbolism that the the sacredness of it that at the very moment of the cor- uh, it, it it required silence and it was uttered in a sacred language, and then now all of a sudden it's barked out in the vernacular at you, and so it overthrows the whole concept. Uh, of a um, of this being a very sacred moment, and turns it into something else. Turns it into the community meal and a show, and uh, time for yakking mm-hmm. when you should be adoring. Indeed. For those of you who are just joining us, we're we're uh, we're reaching the home stretch of our of our eleven step program. I hope you're. Hope you're staying with us here. You're listening to it's Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Program. Okay, <laughs> and uh, you're listening to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host Justin Soder, and I'm joined this evening by Father Anthony Shikata, uh, author of The Work of Human Hands. So, Father, now we move into Step Ten, which is the New Eucharistic Prayers of 1968. Can you quickly discuss the significance of the New Eucharistic Prayers on uh, that were promulgated on the 23rd of May of 68? Well, the the modernists in the liturgical movement, hated the Roman canon, uh, the traditional canon, and wanted to cut pieces out of it, um, and uh, wanted it, wanted the canon to be recited aloud. Well, the Roman canon, when he recited aloud, is also is actually, you know, very long, and there's a lot of this this uh, um, uh, discomforting traditional theology in it. So, and all sorts of things that are anti-ecumenical. So the idea. Uh, of the innovators was to, if you couldn't get rid of it entirely, you could make parts of it optional, which they did. Uh, and you could create other Eucharistic prayers, uh, the equivalents of the canon that would go along with it. So they, they, they cooked up initially, uh, three extra ones, the, uh, uh, canon two, which they said was the, um, uh, restored text by uh, a Roman named uh, a Roman named Hippolytus. So that that was one of them. And then there was a, a second canon, or, the, the, or canon three, which was supposed to have been done in in uh, the Roman style. Uh, and then canon four, which was supposed to be for people who really knew scripture. Uh, all. Three of these extra canons were, in effect, new creations uh, that had been um, dreamed up. The historical uh, roots of Canon Two have, have been, uh, you know, refuted and shown to be false. Um, the other two were um, written in um, some library in France by a uh, uh, by Cipriano Vagagini, who was a, um, a Benedictine monk. Uh, who had done studies on these different issues, and so he cooked up these other two prayers. So these were the uh, alternates for the Roman canon. And uh, they were introduced as, uh, you know, options. So we're in the, the, the world of options that we talked about earlier. So you, you could choose one of four. Then eventually more canons came along. Um, uh, we'll talk about that in a, a later installment. Uh, how many eventually we, we ended up with. But, you know, this was uh, rather surprising, too. But this was in 1968. Yeah, and of course, effectively, it shelved the prayers of the venerable Roman canon, of course, because if you're going to give them the option to say something else, I mean, they're going to take the option. 
Hey, and if it's if it's new, a sure, and if it's simpler, uh, great, and if it's fast, even better. So mm-hmm. I mean, the Canon two. Uh, the, the that was extremely popular. You know, pe- uh, uh, the lazy priest could whip through that thing really, really fast. So uh, you know, it was um, uh, so you you um, introduce alternatives uh, in order to undercut the um, doctrine of um, the, the traditional doctrine. Mm. And this brings us now to part or step number eleven, which is the new order of mass of nineteen sixty nine which is we've mm-hmm. been we've been working up here and and hopefully our listeners can see that by the time the Novus order was promulgated that we had a very um definitive collective uh yet aggressive steps towards this towards this point and I think we've highlighted those and 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 outlined them. Uh, excuse me, outline them well this evening. Uh, and again, I would encourage the listeners to go get the book, Work of Human Hands, and you can read a lot more detail about these steps. So, Father, so 1969 rolls around. Here we have the the promulgation of the Novus Ordo. Um, this is this is sort of uh, the the manifestation of all the dreams of the modernists. You know, here it is, finally. And, and, and we get, you know, of course, to, to Jungman's heart's dream that is finally realized for a stripped-down vernacular mass. And, uh, you know, how, how was this, first and foremost, uh, was this a huge event in 69, or was it a bit subdued before 1970 when, when, the, when the missile actually came out? Uh, well, uh, you'd been so... Speaking of someone you know who was there, he had been so um, uh, taken up, as it were, and overwhelmed by one liturgical change after another. Uh, you had a um, uh, you, you got the feeling you never knew what to expect when you were going to church. Um, those of us who were conservative were sold the idea that well. Um, uh, all of these different liturgical abuses that, well, there's a new order of mass coming out and Paul VI is, is going to settle all of these problems. Okay? So that, that was how it was, was held out and how it was promised um, to us, or this is, you know, kind of what we heard. Uh, it, surely it was the uh, crown, as it were, of this awful process that, uh, you know, had, had been launched. Um, several decades before and and uh, you know Jungmann in effect in 48 um, laid out the program uh, that was going to be followed and you know this in effect in 48 described uh, what we would end up with in 1969 you know his his heart's dream um, yeah that was that was very prophetic um, you, you know it, it's it's kind of striking when you think about Everything that was destroyed going on this this 11-step program here from 1951, uh, it, it, it's really striking that in just such a short period of time, this could have all been lost. Um, I guess I want to talk a little bit about Bugnini's Study Group 10. You talk a lot mm-hmm. about Study Group 10. What was Study Group 10, and what was its ultimate effect on the liturgical reform? Well, uh, this... Uh fits into concilium and and the way the the organization this huge organization concilium as i said bugnini divided up the work study group 10 was the 
uh, group that was the, the uh, group of experts that was charged specifically with coming up with the new order of mass, the new ordinary of mass, uh, the, those parts that um, um, you know would um, remain sort of in the same positions from day to day. Uh, so, uh, uh, study group ten um, had. Uh, um, it was a, uh, a small group, and uh, one of the members, of course, was uh, Jungmann, Joseph Jungmann. Eventually, Louis Bouillet became a part of it. It was the, the, the bad guys of the liturgical movement. Uh, they were the ones who uh, uh, put this together, as these other liturgical changes were um, uh, were uh, being uh, implemented. Uh, you know, step by step, they were working on the final product, which was this this new order of uh, new order of the mass. And if I'm not mistaken, it maybe as '66, they actually had a working model of it uh, going. And uh, Bugnini had the maybe even earlier in '65 celebrated this Novus Ordo Missae for them the first time around. Um, there was a synod of bishops in Rome in 1967 uh, that um, uh, Bugnini uh, had this, the, in effect, the, what would become the Novus Ordo. Uh, he had it celebrated for them so, they could, uh, so they, they could see kind of what was coming, what was going to go on. But this was a, um, uh, you know, this, this work was uh, a constant. And uh, eventually, in, in November, I think, of '67, uh, they arrived at, at, at a final form for this that, that Paul VI uh, approved of. And it was uh, uh, promulgated by Paul VI, uh, just the order of Mass itself, in a, um, about a 300-page paperback book in April of 1969. And that was when the uh, it uh, actually received its its um, uh, you know official introduction to the world. I'd like to remind our listeners here we're coming up on the on the edge of our of our live broadcast in about ten minutes. Uh, we're probably going to go just a hair over because there's so much content to cover in this chapter three. So our live listeners are going to drop, but as soon as the show is over, maybe another fifteen minutes afterwards, you can go on. Uh, um, restorationradionetwork.com you can find the show, you can download it and skip to that and you can catch the last 15 minutes of the show you know, you're not going to miss the end of the show it's just going to cut the live stream here so I just wanted to make that, make our listeners aware so Father um, so you also speak in this, uh, in this section about this, this vision of study group 10 and uh, Bunini arranged the um, uh, the Missa Normative uh, here is to be celebrated. Now, what exactly was this? I mean, what was the uh, the vision of the normal form here, so to speak, of parish mass? What did what what was their goal and vision for this? Well, the the uh, expression uh, Missa Normativa, the normative mass, they they uh, uh, use that expression for it at the uh, at this point in the liturgical reform. Uh, the they, the reformers wanted to get away from the idea of a low mass and a high mass, uh, and um, the, the idea of low mass was, you know, uh, uh, with a lack of participation, as they would say, was, uh, you know, absolutely uh, something that was an anathema to them. So they came up with a, a form of mass where, uh, in 
ideally in the celebration of it, you would have a priest um, who would celebrate it. You would have an altar server. Uh, you would have a, a cantor, someone to sing uh, the different chants. And you would have a, a lector, a layman, to do the readings. And then the different roles would be distributed uh, among these people, and the congregation then would uh, make its responses. So that that was their their idea for the normative mass. That most masses after Vatican after liturgical reforms then would have to be celebrated in uh, that particular way. Okay, and I think this is uh, this is something, and you know, coming on my traditional journey, uh, you know, moving away from in the Novus Ordo some years ago, I remembered hearing this, this rumor floating around. And, I, you know, it, it's sort of ubiquitous to all the, the traditional spheres, if you will, that the new Mass was never validly promulgated, that, that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that the Novus Ordo doesn't have to be followed because Paul VI messed it up, he didn't do it right, it was never validly promulgated. Uh, can you speak briefly on that? And we've also linked uh, in our show notes on RestorationRadioNetwork.com a much broader, in-depth response of Fathers here for, for an article that he wrote. So you can check that out, but I'd like you just to kind of sketch out this argument and why it's not, why it's not correct. Well, uh, the argument was basically this. It was from people who uh, were repelled by the new Mass, and um, they had, of course, the Catholic idea that, well, you know, the Pope is, we have to obey the Pope, but this thing looks so evil we can't possibly obey it. How could we get out of it? How can we figure this out? So the explanation that they gave for the Pope promulgating this Protestant modernist mass was that, well, he didn't really do it in the correct legal form. He only expressed the wish that uh, people use it. It was just an option, and we would still be free to uh, use the old mass uh, without um, um, disobedience to the Pope, that he, in effect, made it optional. So uh, the... um, but um, uh, as consoling as that particular idea was, and it's it's a theory that keeps on coming up, like a, as they would say, like a bad penny. Uh, <laughs> when you look at all the rules uh, for the promulgation of, of, of a law, uh, according to the principles of, of canon law, if Paul VI was indeed a, a, a true pope, he did everything uh, absolutely according to the law to promulgate that correctly. So the argument really doesn't work. Um, and it's one of those things that it's, it's fictitious, and uh, if you know something about canon law and liturgical law, you really should drop the argument. It's, it's a ridiculous argument. Uh, and moreover, I mean... Um, so there are several Vatican statements saying that, yes, you know, you have to observe the new Mass. And uh, I lived through that period, and I saw what happened to priests who didn't say the new Mass. And uh, it was made absolutely clear that this was obligatory, that, um, uh, uh, you know, by a certain date, you had to have your altar turned around, you had to be following the Novus Ordo Missae, there was, was the end of the story. There's no question that uh, it was uh, optional, or that one could say, well, that, that uh, you know, well, the, the Pope didn't uh, do his job correctly. 
So it's it's, mm-hmm. it's but unfortunately it's one of those ideas that uh, um, you know some people have uh, you know really uh, held on to, and it's been endlessly repeated. But it's there's there's really nothing to it. Okay, so we've walked our listeners through this 11-step program here to reform the mass and to essentially and effectively destroy the traditional, the traditional Latin mass as it had been known throughout the centuries of the church. And, Father, you, know, you mentioned some of those, some of those um, voices of opposition that ultimately I think would launch into what we would know today as the – maybe they started off calling themselves the um, – the counter-revolutionaries, if you will, but then it kind of morphed into the title of the Reform or the Reform Group, you know, where, where now we're going to launch into trying to uh, interpret this in a traditional light. And, of course, no, no, further, uh, no further icon of the Reform or the Reform has existed in most modern minds recently than Benedict XVI, who was supposedly seeing or w- was, was going to supposedly see the Reform or the Reform through to his logical conclusion. But that's sort of coming to an end now, isn't it? Uh, yes, indeed, and, and uh, it's uh, interesting that we're talking about the whole um, program of the creation of the new mass, as it were, when uh, just in fact this this week um, uh, there was a, a considerable development, as it were, on, on uh, this particular front. Uh, the reform, the reform movement. Um, began in the 90s with a younger generation of clergy and with the encouragement of the then Cardinal Ratzinger, um, who wanted to put onto the Novus Ordo some more traditional externals and you know, have better music, a Gregorian chant, observe some of the uh, traditional rubrics and so on, uh, and bring it more into line with um, uh, the traditional liturgy. So when... Um, uh, this, you know, in certain conservative circles in the post-Vatican II Church, it got a lot of of, of uh, traction and did attract a number of members of younger clergy. And when Ratzinger was uh, elected in 2005, it really gave them an impetus that they thought something was was uh, going to really happen. Um, it, Ratzinger eventually uh, permitted the um, uh, celebration of the Tridentine Mass according to the 62 Missal, uh, and that was in, in uh, 2007 with his his motu proprio uh, sumorum pontificum. But one of the things which um, uh, actually we uh, predicted would happen is that um, uh, while you can fool around with the Novus Ordo and, and uh, dress it up, if you ha- actually have a, a form, some form of the uh, traditional mass floating around next to it, uh, the, and you have uh, many conservative and, and traditional Catholic ideas and beliefs, the Novus Ordo, even if it's gussied up with Gregorian chant, is going to sort of pale by comparison. And sure enough, that seems to have been exactly what has, has happened the, um, in the post-Vatican II Church, that um, those who uh, uh, gravitated toward the reform the reform movement uh, saw that basically came to see that as a dead end and um, uh, started to gravitate toward the... Um, uh, 
toward actually a form of the traditional mass. And so this past week, one of the, the leaders of the reform of the reform movement, uh, Father uh, Kosek, who actually wrote a book on it in early 2000, um, uh, actually said that the reform of the reform is over, that uh, it's um, uh, that uh, actually uh, the new mass um, uh, does in fact represent a rupture with liturgical tradition. And the, what rather uh, worried uh, people who are worried about the state of the sacred liturgy should be doing is um, gravitating toward the traditional mass. So something like that I find very significant. Um, that it's 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 almost a sea change that people inside the institution who tried to fix the new mass uh, came to the conclusion when they put the traditional mass alongside it that it's really unfixable that there is a um, there is a, a a rupture so that's a, a very significant development I think. Indeed, indeed. Well, Father, we have covered quite a bit in this. Uh, this this chapter three is pretty in depth. So I appreciate you being a trooper here and going a little bit over what what we had planned here this evening. But there was just a lot that had to be covered. Um, you know, in closing, would you like to kind of summarize, or do you have anything else you want to add, or or, or are you uh, are you do you feel like you've covered it all already? <laughs> you want me to add a, a twelfth step. To the no, no, step. well, so we, we, we can turn this to, into to the, reach full sobriety. And then we can say that, that Father Chicada has been involved, you know, in this 12-step program. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that it's, it's a, um, <laughs> no, simply, simply this, that, that um, it is a, um, uh, the creation of the new mass really was, uh, I look at it now as, as one big, um, well, one process that started at a certain point in, uh, in the, um, uh, 19, from 1948 onward, and uh, the, the people who were pulling the strings, uh, in effect, went from, went from triumph to uh, triumph, until uh, eventually they achieved their goal in the uh, transformed liturgy of, of uh, the New Mass, that it's all, all of this is, is basically part of a one piece that is um, uh, that's going in the same direction, and they were very uh, successful as, uh, at what they did. I remember this kind of occurring to me, um, the connections uh, occurring to me at different points uh, in my uh, clerical and my seminary life, the, the seeing the different um, parallels. So I, I suppose I'm in an uh, uh, bit of an uh, odd position or unusual position because I've seen and experienced all of these different forms of the liturgy. Uh, the um, we speak of the reform of the reform. Uh, you know, I was for two years in a monastery. Uh, we had a very conservative, uh, old Latin Gregorian version of the Novus Ordo Missae. Um, the old the the the, the pre. Um, uh, uh, pre-1950s reforms liturgy is what I celebrate now, and I saw the transitional forms of, of the liturgy after Vatican II. So all of these different things uh, uh, I've seen, but it struck me at a number of, uh, number of points that the, um, the, the gradual uh, reforms 
that came before uh, the Second Vatican Council uh, actually did have um, did foreshadow what would come later. I remember the first time that I saw the um, Holy Week liturgy done according to the um, uh, rites of, of Pius the Twelfth. The first time I saw that. Uh, as an adult was in the Pius X Society when I, I went to their seminary in, in Switzerland. And I was struck very much uh, by the parallels between that uh, form of the liturgy and the Novus Ordo Holy Week uh, liturgy that I'd just been involved in the year before in this conservative monastery. And I thought it very curious that um, uh, this was... Uh, I said, thought, well, why didn't the reformers after Vatican II change this too? You know, but I found that they'd actually done it before Vatican II. Hmm. Uh, they had introduced the changes then. So it's it's a uh, that would be the the, the uh, point though that uh, I would make that it is one process, and as we study it, we have to keep that uh, in mind. And you know, for the future restoration of the uh, Catholic liturgy. Uh, we have to advocate going back to the form of it that predates all of this, this modernist influence, which brings us back, incidentally, to our sponsor, which, <laughs> who uh, is uh, publishing this missile, which um, uh, is, is faithful to the old uh, unreformed liturgical practices. And that's why I see that as a, uh, uh, as a very good sign as well and something that, uh, uh, you know, um, gives us hope as we try to restore the faith and liturgy everywhere. Indeed. Well, Father, thank you so much for your time this evening. I know we, we, we've asked a lot from you, and if, if, um, if listeners would like to learn more about Father Chikata, uh, he has many writings and articles up at uh, www.sggresources.org. And St. Gertrude the Great has a lot of good offerings right now. I believe you uh, – Father, do you still have uh, the, the sets of Candlemas candles that are for sale for, right there? Yeah, the, uh, the Candlemas candles, uh, and we made those available for a sort of a nominal – donation um, the uh, other thing that uh, is of interest that I like to uh, plug that we do have on the site is we have um, 70 hours of um, restoration radio broadcasts uh, that you can listen to in your car and there are I think there are 38 different um, uh, topics with various clergy um, um, talking about uh, issues of um, either contemporary interest, such as the uh, question of um, Benedict the Sixteenth, uh, so different social issues, um, the um, uh, controversies among traditionalists, uh, less controversial matters, for instance, the personality and work of Archbishop Lefevre, devotional things like the feasts of the church's liturgical year, sacramentals, spirituality, and so on. So these are these we uh, have uh, available on our website uh, on a uh, two-disc set of uh, uh, Restoration Radio. So if you enjoyed this program, I would invite you to check that out uh, as well and get yourself a set and listen to it uh, in your car. And I'm going to wager a guess, Father, that you're still accepting donations, correct? I'm, uh, I'm uh, assuming that you... Yes, that's right. There, there, there's, uh, as <laughs> Stephen said in the first broadcast, that there's no donation too large. 
that you know we've been turned away. Then we we <laughs> greatly uh, appreciate and encourage the uh, financial help of the faithful for our apostolate as well. Okay. Well, Father, we will uh, we will see you next month on the show on March the I believe March the thirteenth. That's the second the second Thursday in March to discuss Chapter Four, and we will also uh, talk to you next week, uh, one week from tonight, on Francis Watch with Bishop Sanborn. Yes, so, it, it seems you. to be a question of a lot of chicotta, as someone said. So, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Father. We'll we'll talk to you. God soon. bless okay. you all, and thank you for listening. Bye now. God bless. Bye bye. We at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you or to your Catholic faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be or how large it may be. Um, to those of you who have donated, we want to extend a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments you want to pass on to Father, you want to ask a question to us, or if you want to reproduce our work, uh, be sure to send us a message at humanhands at truerestoration.org. You can leave us the message on our Twitter handle, at truerestoration. And uh, so I just want to thank all of our listeners for hanging in with us tonight. I know it went a little bit over, and so we will see you next month on Work of Human Hands. For the restoration... I'm Justin Soder. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.